found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. And it's time for the Real Estate Law Podcast, episode number three. Welcome. Welcome. So we've reached our third episode. Who'd ever thought we'd be here? Oh, it's been a while. <laughs> uh, my name is Jason Muth, and I'm here with... I'm Rory Gill. This is attorney and broker Rory Gill from Urban Village Legal and Next Home Title Town here in Boston. And uh, it's certainly good that you named your brokerage Title Town after what's been happening here lately. We had uh, quite a celebration uh, recently here in Boston for the New England Patriots. I feel like we deserve all the credit for that. <laughs> That's awfully modest of you, isn't it? Uh, I think that uh, we deserve all the credit for cheering heartily for uh, one of our favorite teams. But, uh, you know, those uh, they went out there and, and they won it in a year that they didn't think that uh, that people didn't think that they could. So uh, we're really proud to represent uh, Boston and uh, uh, eastern Massachusetts and uh, the whole region here in New England. And uh, we do think that Titletown uh, is, uh, is Boston right now. And Boston is Titletown. So you know, next home title town makes all the sense in the world. Um, so, Rory, today we're not going to talk about sports. Not at all. No, not at all. Uh, I'm sure the rest of the country is thrilled to hear about Boston sports because uh, we're everyone's favorite now. We're going to talk about an area that you have a ton of expertise in, being that you're both a real estate attorney and you're a practicing broker here in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, uh, and that is buying into a condo association. And, um, you know, my experience with that is simply having purchased into a condo association on three separate occasions. But, you know, most of what I do is I kind of glance at all the information and then I literally say, Rory, can you take care of this? Well, we're fortunate to live in some pretty good condo associations, but I've experienced the horrors of the bad ones. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, we we do have, uh, we've had three fantastic associations. Uh, Everyone gets along. uh, Everyone contributes to the building. There's rare, so far, knock on wood, there's rarely been a a situation that was, um, you know, controversial or antagonistic. Uh, I do remember one loud party at one of our associations uh, that we had to um, you know, remind them that it was uh, well after two in the morning and uh, suddenly things got taken care of. I think they thought that we were actually the landlords in the building. But in the great, in the grand, in the grand <laughs> scheme, in the grand scheme of things, a party once in a while is not is not the end of the world, right? No, not at all. I mean, like you know, some of the horror stories you're talking about, you know, they actually spill right into the courtrooms uh, because you actually have represented associations in courtrooms. Is that correct? Several times, and it's after it, we you know, take it to court, you've failed to get this resolved in every other way possible beforehand. Right. No, Those are the worst of the worst end up in court. No kind of, uh, you know, friendly, neighborly negotiations, uh, mediation didn't work, and next thing you know, like you're in front of a judge. It's almost worse than divorces sometimes. Okay. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but, uh, you know, at the Real Estate Law Podcast, uh, you know, we like to cover a number of 
uh, items related to the same topic during each one of our episodes. Uh, so why don't we really just start with the basics about condo associations? Like, you know, here in the city, you know, we live in Boston and that's where we're recording this. Condo associations are everywhere. And, you know, sometimes when we read uh, real estate blogs or forums elsewhere around what's happening around the country, you know, there's a lot of folks that just say, you know, warning, warning, be careful of the HOA, be, be careful of your condo association. You might not want to buy into that. But, you know, here in the city, th that's essentially what we do, right? right. It's, it's almost inevitable. And it's pretty amazing. If you could find a single family in this neighborhood that's available, that's, it's a rare catch. Right. So it's almost inevitable but it's not always bad either you're splitting costs and you're um, sharing responsibilities with other neighbors mm -hmm. like the roof and painting and siding and shoveling and you know all that stuff that you know instead of paying 100 percent for you're paying 15 percent or whatever percentage you have um, you know so but when when you're looking for property you're you're excited to do a uh, an open house tour. You're on. You're on um, house hunting. You're you're pretending like you're on HGTV, and you know you're out there with your agent, and you're checking out all these hot properties in the city. Um, most of them are probably going to be units within a larger building, and it's probably safe to say that that larger building usually has a condo association, right? Almost always. Almost always. So. Uh, you know, why should a buyer evaluate that association when she's actually looking to put an offer down on a property? Well, when a buyer t starts looking at properties, they'll do a home inspection to make sure that the physical condition of the place is great, but then they'll skate past the condo association and taking a hard look at that. I almost think it's more important than the condo association or than the home inspection because you are entering into a business relationship with everybody in the building and they're going to be your neighbors for your entire time there. So they can make or break your investment. They can make or break your enjoyment of the, your time there. Uh, the association is absolutely critical. So are, are these documents that are readily available when you show up at the open house? If you're working with a great real estate agent, they'll be absolutely readily available either at the open house or with an easy inquiry afterward. Okay. Um, some of the basic information. Um, what, what, what is the basic information of a condo association? Like what should a buyer, what are the first three things they should probably look at? So there are the, there are the publicly available documents that you want to take a look at um, that outline the rules and the regulations of the association. So if you have pets and the building doesn't allow pets, you want to know that up front. But you also want to make sure that the rules are, are pretty standard and there's nothing completely unusual or just incompatible with what your expectations are. That is much That should be readily available um, in public records. So if you know how to do a correct online search, you should be able to discover that before you even take a look at the place. So, you know, s simple rules like, you know, can I rent my unit out? Yes. Like, that would be something that might be in the association's documents, right? Right. And you want to take a look at that, too, and think ahead. So you might want to live there for a few years, but... You might your plan might be to live there for a couple of years and then upgrade to a larger house elsewhere. And if you wanted to keep it and rent it out, that whole possibility might be foreclosed if the rules prohibit it. Right. You know, we spoke about um, short-term rentals and Airbnb in a previous episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. And one thing that you mentioned, Rory, is that the associations these days, you know, all the new ones that are going up here in the city, short-term rentals are pretty much excluded entirely from all condo documents as something that owners would be allowed to do, meaning they can't do it. It's getting written into these documents, right? Right. And you want to actually, you, 
in some cases you might want that restriction there for your quality of life or for your ability to sell the property. But if that's something you want, you might want to look for a place that has a different set of rules than what's standard. Right. So, okay. So let's say that I'm looking at a lot of properties. Uh, I found a couple that look fantastic. Uh, maybe they don't have the the association information right there at the open house. I can't get it online on MLS. Uh, you know, it might be publicly available, right? You're saying that there's a record of this. Right. But you might not get the full set of information from what's not publicly available. And you know what? If you see that and you like the, the, the property, don't worry about it. You can still make an offer on it in the fast-paced market. You might not have time to do all the research that you can. So I recommend putting in an offer, but putting in a standard contingency on there for review of condo docs. Now, a standard contingency is only going to give you a few days to review the information so that you don't keep it off the market forever. But four or five days should be enough time to take a look at the documents and look for the red flags. Have you been in a situation uh, in either of your capacities as an attorney or as a broker working with a buyer where the condo association documents were not provided or where it was difficult to obtain them? That happens in about a third of the time. It happens a good amount where you're, you're working with somebody and you don't get the documents. And to me, that's actually the first red flag. Aside from what the documents contain, if it's very difficult to get the condominium documents from the seller, it could mean the seller is just not on top of things, but it might mean that the condo association is difficult to work with. Could it, could it mean the association just doesn't have their stuff together? It, that's exactly what that could mean. Now, you don't know that for sure. That's what I'm calling it a red flag, not necessarily a reason to run, but it's a red flag that begs some further inquiry. If, they, if it's very difficult to get basic information out of the association, imagine when you're an owner and you need to, uh, to make a request. Maybe a yellow flag. Red flag, I don't know. A yellow flag is a warning sign, right? A red flag is like, I'm going to go running. We'll call it an orange flag. <laughs> an orange flag. Okay. Uh, so we got orange flag uh, where it might be really difficult to obtain the condo association document saying you might want to back off from the unit. Uh, so, you know, what are some other, just some basics that, you know, a buyer should do when they're evaluating those documents? Let's say that they were obtained easily. Okay. So, yes, here, uh, potential buyer, here are the associations, um, the condo association documents. Um, you know, please let us know if you have any questions. What might those questions be? So you first want to take a look at some obvious things that are um, that might be difficult for you. If you are a smoker and you expect to smoke in your unit and the, ban, the condo documents ban smoking, that's a problem. Um, in additionally, you might this is a good time to retain a lawyer to take a look at the documents because I'm often going to say you want to take a look to see if the documents have anything that's not standard, but unless you look at these frequently, you might not know what's not what's unusual. Right. And, and as an attorney who specializes in real estate, that's the urban village legal side of your business, um, you look at these things all the time. Yes. Right. Have, have you ever, or do you write them also? Is that something that is typical of a real estate attorney? I do, and I've done it in two different capacities. One for new condo associations where... Um, the building's being converted into condos, and we can create the documents there as part of the condo conversion. Or I have worked with um, associations that wanted to revamp old condo docs from the 70s or 80s. Mm-hmm. That takes a universal agreement, and that's difficult to get. But sometimes you, you can have that if people just want to update the rules and regulations. And that might be more difficult to get also with some absentee landlords, right? You know, So people that maybe don't live in the state anymore, or it's been passed on to 
or are there elderly folks that are just collecting rent checks or what have you? It might be hard to kind of tackle them down. Not always. You can never predict who's going to be easy to work with and who will be difficult to work with. Right. Um, so I seem to remember uh, we purchased uh, new construction in Boston a few years ago, and you know the building didn't exist prior to our buying it. So somebody wrote those condo documents. Like, so who who would have written what what I have on file? An attorney working for the seller, or technically the declarant, is the word for the person who creates the condo association. The declarant. Yes. Okay. They're not the seller. Usually they are the seller as well, but right. I have to be precise <laughs> because you're an attorney, exactly. You know, so the like, you know, the part of me says, I just figure it out, fix it. You know, I don't know what to declare. I've, I've actually never heard of that term before, so that's my blissful ignorance in all of this. Right, but when you're, if you're working in that situation with new construction, the condo documents might not be finalized yet. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, you often take a copy of the draft documents, call it Exhibit A to the Purchase and Sale Agreement, and say, these have to be the condo docs. If there are any big changes, then we have the right to back out. Okay. All right. Let's move on and talk about the money side of it, mm-hmm. um, the finances, because you know, if it's a new association, obviously there's, there's probably very little in the reserve, if anything. And the reserve is the account that uh, is you know, how much money is in there in case something catastrophic happens, or it's basically the checking account that money can get paid out of for, um, you know, for paying the common bills, right? So for a new association, the finances almost don't matter because there have no bills have ever been accrued, no condo fees have ever really been set. I would almost ignore it. The only thing I would look at there is the cost of the insurance. If the insurance is extremely expensive, there's an orange flag, if you will, that the that an insurance underwriter doesn't believe that the building's in good condition. Right. Otherwise, for an existing association, the first thing you want to take a look at is the condo fee. That's pretty straightforward, but you want to make sure that the fee is not too high because that'll become a burden on your finances while you're there. But you also want to make sure that the fee is not too low. If the fee is under what you'd expect for the area and the type of building, that's a an orange flag that the building isn't saving up enough money over time, that they're cutting corners and they're trying to be cheap now. And while that's great for your monthly budget, it can explode later on if the building needs a new roof or needs some project done and there's no money saved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know how many listings I'll look at where, you know, a listing looks fantastic. The price is like, oh, that's an interesting price for that property. Then you take a look at the HOA and you're like, whoa, they need... 600 bucks a month for that property like you know i get why there's a concierge and an elevator and a workout room and you know i don't know the yoga studio upstairs and a pool outside um but that stuff requires maintenance so you know the the question i guess i would ask as as a potential buyer would be do i even need those amenities in the first place right but you obviously won't be able to to take them away so it's a you know you might enjoy the the amenities i understand why places do it but if you don't appreciate the amenities, you're going to be forced to buy that, effectively buy a gym membership to that uh, gym that's part of the, the condo association. Right. Now, you know, we, we purchased into an association, one of our vacation rental properties, uh, that was an established association that had a pretty solid reserve. Uh, but upon closing, and I might have this completely wrong and then just correct me, but was there an assessment declared before the closing that w- carried over into us, or was that before the closing? What happened there? So there was an assessment um, for um, basically a repair of the septic tank. 
that was assessed before the closing, but we were informed of it in advance and we negotiated with the seller where we would split that assessment. Okay, so we actually ended up paying for some of that during at the closing. At the closing, we paid the seller back for half of the assessment. I, I feel so blissfully ignorant sometimes when I just don't exactly know exactly what happened, but that's why I just say, hey, Rory, can you figure this out? But that raises a good point, too. You want to make sure that the, any additional fees are addressed in the contract. Right, exactly. Okay. So, you know, I, in, in the notes for, uh, you know, what we want to talk about today, uh, you wrote down adequacy of reserves. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. What, first of all, let's define what the reserve is. So there are, there's very little law in the way the condo associations have to conduct themselves or operate their business. They're free to do things in a lot of different ways, and a lot of small associations are going to be very informal. However, the best practice for a condo association is going to have separate accounts for the operating expenses and the reserve account. And the reserve account should have about uh, 15, 10 to 15% of the money that comes in should go into the reserve account and be held there for large projects down the line. Um, a byproduct of having too informal of a system or too low a condo fee is that the reserves might be um, woefully inadequate to pay for repair. So when you're evaluating a condo association, you want to know how much money has been set aside for those projects, the reserves, in whichever way the association did it. And if that number is high, then great. If that number is low, you want to just figure out why. Maybe they just did a big project, and that's why the, the, the funds are low. That might not be a problem at all. If they just redid the roof, you know a new roof doesn't have to be done for a while. So it just begs further inquiry if the reserves are too low, because you'd, you want to avoid having a special assessment down the line. Right, or... <laughs> You know, a situation where the reserve is low and then you close the next thing you know you need a new roof and that wasn't disclosed in advance. Correct. Right. Because once once you've closed, it's now your problem regardless of what the seller knew or what, the, what they said. Right. So if a new roof is needed, I mean, that's probably part of the due diligence in buying into the property, right? Like you might want to look at the, you know, the age of the roof and, you know, if you were to ask a question of, you know, have there been any roof issues lately? Like what... what who has to say what? So often what will happen is you'll have a home inspection in that front, and then if there's a question, it'll be asked to the condo association. Um, especially if you're working with a lender, the lender might actually be sending a questionnaire over to the condominium trustee asking for information about uh, recent repairs in the association or other, other factors that they consider important. But as part of your follow-up to the inspection, all your questions might not be directed just at the seller. It, some of your questions might be directed at the condo association. Okay. Um, so we're on the Real Estate Law Podcast, episode number three. We're talking about buying into a condo association and what are some of the things that you know you should think about. Um, let's talk about litigation and the law. Uh, so you know, how do you know if there is any pending litigation? How do you know if there has been any? Uh, is this something that needs to be disclosed by the seller uh, or the attorney or, or, or what? Like what is that situation where the law is involved. So you have a few questions rolled into there at one, uh, all in one. But let's unpack all those. So where should we start? Um, I'll start with um, the fact that Massachusetts is a non-disclosure state. So the seller doesn't have to provide you any of this information. There's no mandatory property condition disclosure that needs to be sent to you. The seller um, doesn't necessarily even need to answer your questions, but they just can't cover up problems or lie to you. But 
I would start by if you're concerned about litigation or any legal trouble that the condo association's been in, the first thing I would do is ask. If you get um, an if you don't get an answer or if you get an answer you're not happy with from the seller, ask the condo association. And regardless of the answers you get, you want to verify it because litigation is a that's more than an orange flag. That's a red flag that there are that there is trouble going. And if there, you find litigation, you want to know what it's about, what's going on, and whether or not you want to be party to this. And that's where Urban Village Legal could actually stand to make some some money on the side because that's when you get hired. That well, unfortunately, yes. If yeah. there's if there's a if there's a problem with the the association, you are basically buying a position in an exist, in existing lawsuit. So right, you, you know, sometimes these things are explained away. There is a famous uh, luxury condominium complex in Charlestown that had a long-standing lawsuit against the marina next door. That might not have been a reason to run from the the condo association there. But you just want to know what's going on, what you're getting yourself into. So would is this a larger association in Charlestown? That particular one is, yes. So would people, people would kind of still come and go and buy and sell properties knowing that this, uh, this litigation was pending and they were just bought, basically, they understand that going into it? Yes. Yeah. Was this like a multi-year thing? Yes. Okay. Um, are, what are some examples of some reasons that maybe you've been to court with an association or on behalf of an association like obviously you know don't don't say exactly what the situation was like with names and everything but you know like just give a general overview as to what might have um, landed one of your clients in court or why you were brought in well far and away the most common condominium litigation um, is for unpaid condo fees so if a unit owner is not paying um and they don't pay for a while and they ignore the notices and they can't reach some kind of friendly solution, it, it will go to court. And that's the, the vast majority of the condo cases are, are likely that. Again, that's actually a problem. If too many unit owners are not paying their fees, then you know that there's financial trouble for the condo association. Um, so even though, that's a con, even though that's a common type of case, it's still one to be concerned about. Um, they've also sued... Um, we've been involved in litigation going against unit owners that have had um, troublesome pets in the building that have caused problems for people. We've had um, separate cases against unit owners who are hoarders that were causing mold and safety issues in the building. Um, we've gone against uh, tenants of owners who were causing real physical damage to buildings and getting into fights and um, bringing police into the building. And all of these things are issues that need to get resolved and the existing condo association has to pursue these. But as a buyer, and you're, from that perspective, you have to ask yourself whether you want to get involved with this mm-hmm. um, or if you should just continue your home search onto the next place. Yeah, I mean, because it just doesn't have to be your problem. I mean, like if you fall in love with a property to the point that you're willing to deal with this, then that's one thing. But, you know, there's always going to be another unit available. Uh, that might just be easier than having this headache, right? Yep. And but as long as you understand what what you're getting yourself into, it's almost like um, you know those are all collectively they're probably not rare. Uh, individually, those are probably relatively rare circumstances because in most condominiums, at least here in Boston, you know the majority of them operate fine, right? Yes, and you have to. St- you have to be on the lookout for the, the terrible situations because they can ruin your enjoyment of your whole home. 
um, and or your investment. But the vast majority of condo associations work well, and if you can cooperate with your neighbors, you're saving money, you're splitting expenses with them, and it's been a rewarding experience wherever we've lived. So we've been fortunate. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we, we can speak about just, you know, individual and personal experience and it's just a matter of, you know, writing checks every month and making sure they're on time and, you know, getting together. What is the rule usually once a year that the association has to get together? So there are some soft rules in just about all condo documents that say they have to get together on, for example, the third Tuesday of February. Right. Those are almost universally ignored. But yes, condo right. associations should get together at least once a year. And if there's anything ongoing, more frequently than that. I mean, I don't think that we've had an association meeting in any of our buildings that didn't involve a number of bottles of wine along with the meeting. And it wasn't to drown our sorrows. It was really just to be a kind of a, a collegial neighborly thing to get together and chat about stuff. Absolutely. So even though I see the worst of it, I'm not cautioning people against condo associations altogether. Right, right. Um, so a couple of final things that we should probably chat about. And by the way, a, a number of those cases that you mentioned, those are those are going to be future episodes of the Real Estate Law Podcast because we really have to dig into some of that stuff. I mean, you just mentioned hoarders and pets, and there's so many pets out there, and there's so many things that people have to keep in keep in mind. Uh, you know, when they have pets and they're living in kind of a cohabiting situation with multiple. Uh, multiple neighbors in the same building, but hoarders. I got to hear about that. I haven't. I don't think I've heard. I don't know. I don't know how much I want to hear about it, but you know, we'll we'll document that in a future episode. That was a glamorous visit. I promise you. <laughs> uh, all right. So, just a couple final things. Um, you know, multiple changes in property management. Something that you mentioned as an item that you should uh, be on the lookout for. So, what what does that mean? Sure. If a condo association uses a property manager, typically larger associations will do that. It's fine if they change every once in a while, that's just a matter of business, but if there are frequent changes in the property management company that needs further inquiry, whether or not there's just an indecisiveness with there or if there are problems. I've seen property management companies multiple times fire a condo association, just pull out their business because personalities are too difficult to deal with. So I mentioned um, that if you see multiple changes in property management, ask why. Okay. And, and finally, uh, one last note that you mentioned uh, on, on my show notes here are the owner occupancy rate. So um, what, what does that mean? That how many units are owned uh, and not rented out to other people or just are still you know, not on the market? So owner occupancy rate is the uh, percentage of units that are occupied by the owners themselves. And I actually put this last because I think this is an important thing to know, but it's not the most important. I push back from the idea that tenants are bad occupants and bad neighbors because that's not always true. But it is still something to know about a building and a condo association because if the owner occupancy rate is too low, it might limit your ability to sell or refinance in the future because not all loan programs allow for low owner occupancy rates of buildings. So if you're going to sell it would preclude you from being able to sell to most FHA buyers, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to keep, keep um, the, if you want the place to be um, in good position for resale, a low owner occupancy rate could be a problem. Yeah, I, I know that when we purchased, uh, you know, our our unit where we live uh, here in Boston, it was a new construction condo, and nobody had closed yet. Right, and that's a bit of a fallacy because everybody ended up closing in pretty much the same week. Right, but because we were one of the first ones to actually close. It eliminated some loan programs that 
so a loan part yeah we, we had to do a adjustable rate loan uh, instead of a fixed loan right. at the very beginning so in that case that wasn't that um, big of a deal but lots of the low um, down payment programs are going to exclude these types of condos right right well a lot to uh, think about when you're buying into a condo association uh, you know being that you're an attorney and a broker, uh, that's probably a big benefit to um, you know any of your clients or people that you've worked with because you probably see it from both sides. Right. As I just say, I like to I like to put look past the pretty pictures and see what's actually going on with the real estate. Exactly. Okay. Well, uh, Rory, really appreciate once again uh, you're being being a part of the Real Estate Law Podcast, and uh, this is uh, attorney and broker Rory Gill uh, here in Boston, and you could find him at urbanvillagelegal.com and nexthometitletown.com. That's that's the new brokerage, Don't right? forget Titletown, nexthometitletown.com. Excellent. Okay. Uh, well, once again, we really appreciate your listening to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Uh, you could download all episodes uh, right now where you choose to get all your podcasts, whether it's uh, on uh, iTunes or Google Play or any of the podcast platforms. We really appreciate your listening. We'd love it for some feedback. So feel free to reach out directly to Rory at either of his websites, um, or you can check the show notes and find out a way to get a hold of both of us. Um, and we love it if you were to give us some glowing five-star reviews, because then maybe we'll uh, get some better standing in all of these podcast platforms. Uh, so once again, this is Jason Muth. And you're listening to uh, the Real Estate Law Podcast. Goodbye, Rory. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.